4, if someone wants to uh, double-check that page number, but it should be on uh, 484 of your Bible in front of you in the chair. Go ahead and open up to it so that you can follow along as we read the whole psalm and then as we uh, do our best to learn from the psalmist this morning. Again, we're at Psalm 71. The Word of God reads, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I've leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I've been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O oh God, be not far from me. O oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of the deeds of salvation, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they who have been put, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and you truly are our rock of refuge. You are our hiding place. We are safe in your arms. At times, Lord, we're tempted to run to other places. May we always run to you. May all our hope be in you. And may you keep us, Lord, from returning evil to evil when evil is done to us. May you keep us, Lord, from vengeance. Show us inexperienced saints how to glorify you when we are targets of injustice. And help our experienced saints to grow wiser as they see this seasoned saint. Seek your face, Lord, and pray for your help. Help us to all have a clear understanding of how to actively seek your help and deliverance in a way that glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you thankful that you were able to learn from someone more experienced than yourself? You pick the area of life. You got to learn from someone more experienced than yourself. They were older and more experienced and more knowledgeable. And so you got to to watch and to see and to spend time and learn from them. And it was a great benefit to you. It's an unfathomable blessing to be able to have that. I remember when when, uh, I first was brought on staff, pastoral staff at Hope Chapel, which is the church that a lot of us were at before we planned Redeem South Bay, and we had something called pastor on duty. And the pastor on duty would take calls to different immediate needs that people were having. Uh, And so one of these calls that I got, uh, or somebody that walked in, was having conflict with their with their roommate, and their roommate was was yelling at him, and it was this just this ugly situation. And he was concerned that if he went by himself, that his roommate would kill him, and he really needed to get some stuff out of out of his home. And so being an inexperienced pastor, I'm thinking, man, this is crazy. <laughs> I don't want to go alone. I don't even know what to do. What am I going to say when I get there? How, you know? And, and, and what, if, what if this guy hates his roommate so much that he kills him and then me next, right? These are the thoughts that are going, going on in my head. And so I'm like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Pastor Kevin. So I go and I get Pastor Kevin. I'm like, here's the situation. And he's like, all right, we'll, we'll go over there together. And so we go over there together, and I'm still nervous. And I don't know if he is or not. He doesn't look nervous at all. But I do none of the talking. He does all the talking. I didn't say a word, and, and by God's grace, the, esca- the, the situation was, was de-escalated, uh, and, and no one was hurt, and I lived to pastor another day, and, and was all the more wiser for getting to see Pastor Kevin deal with that situation. It is a huge blessing to learn from seasoned saints, and here what we have in Psalm 71 is that exact thing. So if you're, you're thinking, wow, this, this sounds like, you know, just the, the stuff that an old guy does, it, it is that, but it's done for an example to you, younger people. So even though you may feel like it's directed that way, and the example is given by someone who's much older than you, it is an example worth following, and so don't tune out. Learn as much as you can. Because what the season saying in Psalm 71 has to teach us is to take refuge in the Lord. How do we do that? Most of us know that that's something that we should do, but how do we do it? And that's what we get to see. Someone who's been doing that his entire life, even to old age, he knows how to do it, and he knows how to do it well, and we need to learn from him. 
By the way, if you thought that, that you were just going to grow old and that life was going to get really easy and that you weren't going to have any problems and that you are going to kind of just coast into glory, I got bad news for you. You're going to have to take refuge in the Lord every day of your life until he calls you home. And so learn well from this seasoned saint in Psalm 71. Proverbs 24, verse 29 says, Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Proverbs 22, 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. The way our psalmist puts it is, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Because he's in the midst of people attacking him people hating him, people trying to destroy him, most likely for his stand, for being righteous and wanting to serve the Lord. And so the main idea here in Psalm 71 is that we see three ways that seasoned saints take refuge in the Lord so that even in old age, we will have an active, faithful, and God-glorifying response when we are targets or victims of injustice. As a reminder, you have notes in your bulletin, and I've left the main part of those, uh, or I've left part of those main points blank so that you can fill those in and, and work, uh, work for those truths and remember them. The first way that we see seasoned, a seasoned saint take refuge in the Lord is by praying without wavering. Praying without wavering. If you want to have an active, faithful, God-glorifying response when you're a target or a victim of injustice, then learn from the elderly psalmist and pray without wavering. Let's talk first about the pray part and then the without wavering part next. We cannot help but notice that the psalmist is a man of prayer. When you read this psalm, what is this psalm? but a prayer, right? And so the psalmist is praying. He knows that he has problems and he, where does he go when he has problems? Where does he go when he's weak? Where does he go when he's in need? He goes to the Lord and he asks of him. Look at what the psalmist says in the first six verses here. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You've given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. So we're seeing the core of the psalmist's prayer. What is he asking for? Deliverance. We also see the core of the psalmist's problem, problem that he's facing. He has, he has found himself, what he describes as, in the grasp of wicked men. They are taking hold of him or planning to take hold of him and destroy him. He describes them as the wicked and the unjust and cruel or oppressive. And all of this indicates that their attitudes and their actions toward the psalmist are completely unjustified and evil. And so the psalmist is innocent, not from all sin, but in regards to the sort of things that they are plotting and planning against him and the slander that they are passing on about him. Look at verse 13. He calls these people his accusers. And so they are making accusations that are baseless and slanderous, intended only to turn people against the psalmist in an effort to destroy his life. In verse 11, we hear what the accusers are saying. They say in verse 11, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there is none to deliver him. 
And so the psalmist feels like he's on the brink of death. And if that wasn't bad enough, he also, he, he also uh, understands that he is an old and weak man. Once a strong man, he describes himself in our passage as one who is no better than one, uh, excuse me, no better than one who is of old age and whose strength is spent. What ability, what physical ability does he have to fend off these attacks? In verse 9, he cries to the Lord, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. So what does our psalmist do? Being an old man, being a vulnerable man, being a weak man, having little strength. He does what I think he did his whole life when he found himself in moments like that, in moments of weakness, in moments of difficulty. He prays. He runs to the Lord. He runs to the rock. He does not respond in justice with vindictiveness, not with revenge, but with prayer. He runs to the Lord. He runs to the rock. He even in his old age, even after all of his experience, has not graduated from prayer. And neither should we. He has not graduated from prayer, and neither should we. If he is weak, then he's going to run to the one who is strong. And if he's in help, he's going to run to the God who can offer salvation. And here's the thing, you guys. There's a tendency that we all have in our pride to not ask for help when we need it. How many know somebody like that? How do you know that somebody like that is you, <laughs> right? Uh, that tendency seems to only grow as we age. It, the older we are, the less inclined we are to seek the help of others. Tend, we tend to hide our weaknesses and keep our vulnerabilities out of the sight of others because, you know, we don't want to burden people. All of that's ridiculous, especially in the context of a relationship with the Lord. Can you hide your weaknesses from God? Does he not intimately know your every frailty? Is he not perfectly aware of your every imperfection? Does he not know your every need before you even ask? And will the almighty God be burdened by your weakness? What's the answer, church? No. Let's say that stronger. What's the answer, church? No. Amen. Absolutely not. There's no shame. There's everything right and nothing wrong being broken and humble before the Lord and running to him as a rock and a refuge. Bring your problems to him. Cry out to him. And do so without wavering. When we, well, one of the things we see here is the psalmist is not just praying, but he's pray, praying with unwavering trust in the Lord. He prays trustingly. He prays believingly. And so don't just pray, but pray with com- great confidence in God because you know that you're praying to a great God. That's what our psalmist does. And here's the thing. The key to being unwavering in faith, because many are probably thinking like, yeah, that'd be nice. (laughs) I'd love to do that. I want to do that more. Well, here's the key. The key to being unwavering in faith and offering unwavering prayer is that you have to seek rest in who God is and what he has done. You have to seek rest in who God is and in what he has done because both of these things are unchanging, rock solid ground and shelter for you in the midst of storms of injustice to protect you from being a slave to fear and doubt and to give in to temptation to be vindictive. You see, if you're going to pray without wavering, you need to remind yourself of who God is because who he is is rock solid. 
and he is unchanging. If you need protection from the assaults of others, your own abilities, your own strength, your own character, your own righteousness, all of that will fail. If you need help and you need deliverance, God is a rock and a refuge. He alone is reliable. All other things, all other persons, all other creatures are weak and frail, and unreliable, and prone to fail. You need your hope and your confidence in God. That's what the psalmist has. You need a God who can speak the word, and you'll be freed from your enemies. So fix your eyes on who God is, if you want to pray without wavering. Look at what the psalmist does in verse 2. He says, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. In your righteousness. What will be the mighty fortress for him? It will be God and his character, preeminent, among the different things that he could focus on, at least in this moment, is the righteousness of God. When injustice is being done to him, when unrighteousness is being done to him, he is going to not return unrighteousness with, right, with unrighteousness, but run to the righteous rock and wait righteously for the rock to protect him and to vindicate him. God has promised to vindicate and deliver the righteous. His character demands it. His promises require it. He will vindicate the righteous and pour out just vengeful wrath on those who do evil. You see, when a man rises up or woman and plots evil against his neighbor and seeks their harm to destroy the person or their reputation, their property, or their family, or their friends, they, they break the two greatest commandments, to, which are to love God and to love one's neighbor. And when that happens, God's wrath being a just God with nothing escaping his sight. His wrath is stored up like a dark cloud over that person to come down with unstoppable fury when God deems it time. No one is getting away with anything. That's why God is a rock. You can run to him and you can be completely confident that though you may not know when, you know that it will happen. Because God is just, and he is righteous. And so who he is provides for you a sure protection and safe place. You don't have to take vengeance into your own hands. But not only do we see who God is being this rock and refuge for us, but also the psalmist focuses on what God has done. So we, we see if you want to have unwavering faith in the Lord and pray to him with unwavering faith, you don't focus just on who he is, but you also take into mind what he has done and what he does. Look in verse 5. The psalmist says, Rescue me, O my God, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. The point is, Lord, I've always depended on you. You've always been there for me. Your providential love and care for me is an unassailable fact of how much you love me and how you're there for me and how you who have cared for me will care for me again now even as I go through this. Doesn't matter what anyone says. God, this is what you have done. No one is changing history. No one is changing the great saving acts of God in my life. God is the one who took me from my mother's womb. He has, he, he has great trust in the Lord. And I love how he, he, he just, he conceives of, of, of God, his life, not only from his youth that he trusts, but he even goes, he's like, wait, I'm going to back it up even more. 
Not only since I was a youth, but from, from, from the, the time before my birth. Even then, when, when I was in my mother's womb, when you were knitting me together in my mother's womb, I completely and utterly relied upon you. I would have no life if it weren't for you. And then what's interesting is he says, you are he who took me from my mother's womb. Uh, and, and it's interesting in the Hebrew because the word for took seems to be from a word that means to cut. But it seemed weird to us, you're, you're he who cut me from my mother's womb. But probably, I think, or at least possibly what I think is going on there is that it's picturing God as the one cutting the umbilical cord. It's picturing God in his, his gentle, loving care as a, as a midwife. Cutting the umbilical cord in ancient days was the job of the midwife at birth. In our days, it's the honor of fathers who are not squeamish, right? <laughs> uh, but what a moment that is. I got to do that with my kids. And just think, this, this baby is, is completely, whole life, dependent on others. And the psalmist is saying, you, Lord, have been there the whole time for me. You are he who cut me from my mother's womb. And if you, O oh God, were there at my most vulnerable, most weak, totally unable to do anything for myself moments, then I can have great confidence that when I am old, when I am frail, when I can barely take care of myself, guess what? God, you will take care of me. You will not forsake me. Because that's what God's always done for him. And so this creates huge unwavering confidence in the Lord. And I, I love one, one commentator talking about how, you know, this feature, it's not just in Psalm 71, but a lot of the Psalms, you hear the cry for help, you hear that you see the problem, and then you see them move to such great confidence. Uh, one commentator said, but all in all, the psalmists have, I love what he says here, an audacious certainty, an audacious certainty about them that seems to be substantiated by nothing but God. I love it. The psalmists have an audacious certainty about them that seems to be substantiated by nothing but God. Would to God that we had that sort of audacious certainty. Would to God that, that we would rest on who he is and what he has done and that it would create in us unwavering hope and trust and prayer to him. God is a God who is just. He is perfectly faithful. He will judge the wicked. That is a great comfort to those who are trusting in him. It's a great comfort to the righteous, but it's a terrifying reality for the wicked because whenever sin is, whenever sin is committed, when those who rebel against God and pervert justice and, and live in rebellion against God, you can be certain that God's wrath is coming. He has already released the hounds. And they will come and they will devour the wicked. There's no escaping that because the judge of all the earth will do what is right. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, says, turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and you will be saved. That though God is perfectly just, he's also the one who justifies the wicked by faith in his son. And Psalm 2 says to us, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Listen to this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
If you want to have the blessing of having a right relationship with God and having your injustices that you've committed against God and others forgiven, then you must take refuge in him and he will bless you and he will welcome you and he will forgive you and he will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. This is the hope for every rebel. This is the hope for everyone who has ever sinned and has ever committed injustice. But you have to turn. You have to humble yourself. You have to run to him. You have to trust in him. He has to become your only refuge. So I ask if you've done that this morning. If not, do it. Do not wait another day. Tomorrow is not promised to you. Today is the day of salvation. Take refuge in the Lord and learn from him to trust him and to grow stronger in your faith in him and to be a light and to be able to endure injustices for his sake and to be a person of prayer in the midst of it. That is to pray without wavering. Let's move secondly to another way that our seasoned saint takes refuge in the Lord, and that is to praise without ceasing. Praise without ceasing. How do seasoned saints take refuge in the Lord when they're targeted targets or victims of injustice? They praise without ceasing. As long as the Lord gives the psalmist breath, he is going to praise the Lord. Even though he has not come to the point of experiencing deliverance, the deliverance that he is seeking in that moment, he is still, while waiting for the Lord, he's going to praise the Lord. You think, what is it to praise the Lord? Everyone's going to, they're about to all kill me. You praise the Lord. Though he slay me, yet I'll praise him. You praise him ceaselessly. Look at how the psalmist does this. In verse 6, he says, my praise is continually of you. Verse 8, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Verse 14, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. And, and think for a second, what does he praise him for? He praises him for who he is and what he has done. Just as I mentioned before, these are the things that, that give him such strength and certainty of faith. He, he not only is motivated to pray for these things because of that, but he's motivated to praise God for those things. Look in verse 19. He says, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. What is he doing? He's praising God for who he is. He's a, he's a perfectly righteous God. But he goes on, he says, you who have done great things. What is, he praising for him? what is he praising God for there? What God has done. You who have done great things. And then when you put together who God is and what he has done, and you're like, the, both of these all together is, is incomparably great, then he says, oh God, who is like you? He's gloriously incomparable. The answer is no one. Let's be a little bit stronger. The answer is no one, no one is like him. And this then, this remembering and praising gives birth to a flurry of expectation. You will, for, if we look at verses 20 to 24, you will, you will, you will, I will, I will, I will. The psalmist even says in verse 20 that you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. What great faith. But you know how he gets there? He gets there by praising God. He starts off trusting the Lord, seeking the Lord, praying to the Lord, and then he's praising God, and then he comes, it's like he's growing in confidence the more he praises God. 
He's amazed at who God is and what he has done. And he trusts in the sovereignty of God. Look at what he says. You who have made me see many troubles will revive me again. He's saying, Lord, I know that every single thing, every single trial, every single trouble that I faced in my life, uh, though there may be mediating agents or whatever, is ultimately from you. All things are from him and through him and to him. To him be the glory forever and ever. None of these things could happen to me if you were not letting it happen to me, Lord. If you did not bring this upon me for your glory and for, for my growth and my maturity. And you, Lord, when you brought these things, I, you have taught me well. Because time and time and time again, I saw you when I cried out to you. I'm standing here living proof that you are God who delivers. And you are God who saves. Has God made you see many troubles and calamities? Does your presence here not testify to the fact that he's delivered you from them all? I praise God that uh, though I was a preemie, born six weeks premature, you know, C-section uh, uh, baby, that God spared my life. And that I was born in a time when there's, there's advancements in technology and things like that that could that make it, make it uh, more likely for, you know, a baby like me to, to make it. I praise God for that. I praise God that when I was eight and I was on, a, on, on like a long surfboard that had an opening so you can look through it and see the fish beneath you. I didn't really know how to swim. I didn't have a life jacket on, but I thought, you know, I'd be fine. I got the board. I fell off the board. I start to sink. I start to swallow water. My dad wants to try to come and, and, and help me. Uh, I'm probably 30 yards, 30 yards off uh, the, the, the sand, the beach in Catalina, and he wants to run at me, but he has, a, he has a blown ACL that he's just recovering from, and so my brother runs, jumps sin swims and drags me to shore. I praise God that I didn't die in Catalina as an eight-year-old. I praise God that, that uh, when I went rock climbing for a friend's bachelor party while my wife was pregnant with my first son Elias and we got to a point where we were climbing down, we had to actually, only way we could get down from there, jump to another rock, which just if you don't make the jump right or you fall to the left or to the right, you're going down 50 feet to your death. And I remember thinking, what a fool I was for being in that situation, and I cried to the Lord to help me. And, and probably if you weren't, you know, if you didn't have these big, you know, drops on either side, it probably was not that hard of a <laughs> jump to make. But the stakes were high, right? And so I praise God that uh, he delivered me again from there. I praise God that when I went to Cambodia on a mission trip, and I was eating, I began to choke on chicken. And I tried to wash the chicken down with water, but then like the water got stuck at what felt like in between large chunks of chicken. And then the water couldn't even like come out. And then I was, I, I felt like I was drowning. <laughs> and then I, and, and I'm just trying to, to clear out and, and, and I'm just, all I'm thinking in my head is, Lord, I, I came to Cambodia and I die of choking on chicken. <laughs> like, you, Lord, deliver me. Like, at least let people kill me for my faith or something. Like, I don't want the, the news lines to be like, you know, what a shame this guy went to Cambodia choked on chicken. Like, Lord, rescue me. And he did. And I praise God for that. He who has made us see many troubles and calamities will revive us again. And when we praise God for how he's delivered us, we, we, can't, we can't help but grow stronger in our faith. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says of Abraham that he, in hope, he believed against hope as he had been told. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his body good as dead 
or the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Do you hear that? For Abraham, humanly speaking, there's no way that he and Sarah are going to conceive. They're way too old. Their body's good as dead. Humanly speaking, the psalmist is old and frail, and he has no way to protect himself from his enemies. He views himself as good as dead. How do we overcome this doubt? How do we, how do we uh, see with faith and have unwavering wavering trust in the Lord? You consider God. Abraham grew strong in his faith, it says, as he gave glory to God. It says, fully convinced that God was able. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised to do. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Why is it the case that, that when we praise God and we glorify God, we go stronger in our faith? It's because singing praises to God is glorifying to the Lord and faith building for us. It celebrates God and it catechizes man. It, it exalts the Savior. It educates the soul. It delights the Creator and disciples the creature. That's what happens when we praise Him. And so, yes, if He hasn't delivered you yet, you praise Him from there. You praise him unceasingly. You praise him. What do I have to praise him? Praise him for how he even lets you get to that moment. How he provided for your life every single second of every single day to bring you to that moment. Spurgeon says, Charles Spurgeon says, where goodness has been unceasingly received, praise should be unceasingly offered. It is our job to praise him. To pray and to praise him. So if you're waiting for God's vindication and praying for his help, grow strong in your faith as you praise him. This leads to our third point then, proclaim without relenting. Proclaim without relenting. If you want to have an active, faithful, God-glorifying response when you are a target or victim of injustice, then learn from the elderly psalmist and proclaim without relenting. He moves in the psalm from, from his prayers to also his, his, his praise to then also proclaiming. And we see this in verse 15. The psalmist says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. Their number is past my knowledge. And he says, With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come, and I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. The psalmist's enemies have come with accusations. They have come with falsehoods. They have come with plans to kill them. He has come with the mighty deeds of the Lord. They're locked and loaded with lies. He is well stocked with the saving acts of God. He knows the promises of Genesis. He knows the miraculous deliverance of Exodus. He knows the fiery judgment of Nadab and Abihu and Leviticus. He knows the ground swallowing the rebels of Korah in numbers. He knows the covenant promises and curses of Deuteronomy. He knows the Lord fighting for him in Joshua, the Lord's rescuing in Judges. The list goes on. He is armed with the mighty deeds of God. That's why he's praising him. And not just praising him, but proclaiming these things to his enemies and to others around him as well. This is his ammo. This is his warfare. This is his game plan. This is his battle strategy. Pray. Praise. Proclaim. 
He says in verse 17, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. And listen to what he says here, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. I love what the psalmist says here. He says that I may be old, but I'm not finished. I may be tired and weak, but God is mighty and strong. So Lord, Deliver me again so I can teach the next generation, so I can proclaim your saving acts to them. He wants to proclaim without relenting. This is his life's purpose, and it should be ours as well. He cries for the Lord to not forsake him in his weakness, in his old age, and God doesn't. Our culture, I think it would be fair to say that our culture has a crisis in the way that it treats the elderly. How disposable we treat them and view them as. And we have the tendency in their old age to forsake them when their strength is spent. Many of you guys know that my Nana passed away this this week and there are a lot of challenges for my parents caring for her in the last year of her life as her memory, her abilities, uh, and, and health declined in many different ways. I was so proud, and I told my parents this, especially my mom, so proud of how you loved your mom and how you guys didn't forsake her when she was old and when she was sick and when it was hard, and when it took a lot of time, and a lot of effort, and a lot of patience, and a lot of love. You cared for her. You loved her, and honored her to the end. I was so proud of my parents for that. You see, God is a God who from beginning to end cares, and takes care of his precious people. Isaiah 46, listen to this, verses 3 and 4. God says through Isaiah the prophet, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. The faithful should take comfort in this fact that no matter how low your enemies seek to pull you down, it will only be temporary. It won't be final. And in a short time, God will give grace to the humble and lift you up and revive and exalt and give life to those who trust in him. And they will live and sing his praises and proclaim it to others. This is the Christian life. You go low before you go high. You're humbled before you're exalted. It's sufferings and then the subsequent glories. It's humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God and at the proper time, he will exalt you. You don't get vindictive. You wait for the Lord's vindication. Instead of retaliating, you retell of his greatness. And instead of returning evil for evil, you entrust yourself to him who judges justly. So do not be ashamed. Do not hold back. Do not relent. Even as you're waiting for the deliverance, you proclaim him. You proclaim him without relenting. In Psalm 78, we see a, a beautiful illustration 
of the resolve to teach the coming generation. In Psalm 78, verses 5 to 8, says that we will not hide from them, excuse me, we will not hide them from their, their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to the Lord. That, that's a beautiful summary of what education, what discipleship, what parenting, what grandparenting, what spiritual grandparenting is all about. It's why we're here. This is our main task. If the Lord has lengthened your days and you still find yourself here, then you're here to be a spiritual parent, grandparent, or great-grandparent to your kids and to other people's kids. Labor to see the next generation grow in their knowledge and understanding of the Lord. That is how you end well. That is how you finish the race. Using your final laps, even when your strength feels like it's spent, to muster all you have to pass on all you know of God and his mighty deeds. So invest in the youth. Buy them books. Help them get educated in the things of the Lord. Get them a catechism. Memorize a catechism with them. Contribute to their tuition. Visit them. Spend time with them. Go on walks with them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Tell them of God's mighty deeds in your life and that you've learned from the scriptures and don't grow weary in that task. You know what's wonderful about prayer and praise and proclamation? That even when you're old and you lose your ability to walk, to see, to hear, to taste, can't do what you used to do, barring some throat or esophageal problems, to your oldest age, you can speak. And if you can speak, then, then you can pray. And if you can speak, then you can praise God. And if you can speak, then you can proclaim his word. What a gift. And you can pass it on to the next generation. And let me just say this, if you have a voice, then you have a vocation. A lot of us look at the elderly and think that they, what use do they have? It's the way our culture views them. But God says they have a great use because I've given them a voice and I've given them years of walking with me and I've given them wisdom and knowledge beyond any of the people younger than them so that they can teach and they can pour into those who are coming after them. If you have a voice, you have a vocation. If you have life, then you have life to give. And if you have knowledge of God, then you have intellectual bread to feed the hungry, the hungry and immature saints. If you have days, you have a duty. If you have the Father's breath, then you have the Father's business to do. Some of the most important ministries in the scriptures were done by saints in their old age. You know Moses served the Lord, called into his ministry to deliver Israel when he was 80, died at 120. Abraham, his years 75 to 100, when most of the things we see taking place in his life. Joshua, uh, 
takes leadership for Moses at age 61, dies at age 110. Caleb spied out the land at 40, but at 85 years old is still saying, let me go in and take the land that the Lord has promised for me. John the Apostle writing the book of Revelation, most likely uh, beyond ages 70, 80, 90. Um, Listen to Psalm 92. It says, the righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Why? To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Who could say that better than a 70-year-old, or an 80-year-old, or a 90-year-old? That he is my rock. In all of my days, I've never seen him once do evil. He is righteous and good. There's no unrighteousness in him. So, friends, proclaim without relenting. Your purpose to proclaim him does not fade with age. It may change the way it looks. But the goal of raising up the next generation of knowledge of God doesn't change. Be creative. Send emails. Write birthday cards. Share encouraging words. Pen some letters. Write a song. Read a book with someone. Memorize scripture with someone. Do a Bible reading plan with someone. Be intentional. Be generous. But most of all, be relentless. That's what our psalmist is doing. I believe that the 76 or I don't know how many kids of this church will be impacted in ways immeasurable and have already been by the older saints' investment into them. And so do it more and more. Every name you learn, every child you greet, every little one you teach, you're making investments into the future kingdom of God that God will gladly use to bear fruit. Fruit born from the ministry of faithful older saints who as they grew more gray, grew more happy and relentless in seeing the next generation know and love God. That's the psalmist's desire. It's his desire even in the midst of the great difficulties that he is facing. But he is committed to unwavering prayer, to unceasing praise, and to unrelenting proclamation. I asked you in the beginning how many of you were thankful that you had someone more experienced than you to learn from. I think it's safe to say that we're all thankful for that. As death draws near for all of us, we need not fear if we trust in Christ. Though we have no power and experience of our own to defeat death, our Lord Jesus does. And just as the psalmist prayed that God would bring him out from the depths of the earth, the central fact of Christianity is that Christ has been raised from the grave. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter preached Uh, Psalm 16, and he said that God did not abandon Christ's soul to Hades or Sheol, nor let his flesh see corruption, but raised him up. And Peter and the rest of the apostles were witnesses of those things. And so they were unrelentingly preaching that message. The Lord Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, appeared to John and spoke to him, revealed to him in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18 saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. When you get to Revelation 20, which is nearly one of the last chapters of the Bible, John's shown a vision of the return of Christ, 
when he sees all the saints who have believed in Jesus raised from the dead and reigning with Christ forever. And he also sees death and Hades and Satan thrown into the lake of fire and those who did not trust in Christ thrown into the lake of fire, which is called the second death. It says that anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. Christ not only conquered death in Hades and Satan in his death and resurrection, but he also does away with them all finally when he throws them in the lake of fire. And when we trust in the Lord Jesus, we are delivered from all of that. And it's a scary thing to face death. But when you have Christ and he's gone before you and he's already gone through that experience himself, and he's already experienced the deliverance of God in it. And he says that I am the resurrection and the life. That if you believe in me, though you die, yet you will live. Then you can have great confidence in the Lord. Great peace. Great assurance that God will raise you too from the dead. And that death will not be the end of your life. But that you will be raised and you will and enjoy eternity, all because you took refuge in him, because he graciously kept his promises and delivered you. The Apostle Paul, some of the last years of his life, he closes Second Timothy, and I just want you to hear his aud- audacious certainty as he prays, praises and proclaims Christ, even in the midst of unjust arrest even in the midst of being put on trial for false accusations. This is what he says, and we'll just close with this. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We await your deliverance. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a patient, peaceful, prayerful people, Lord. Not taking vengeance into our own hands, but entrusting you who judge justly, Lord. And that it would lead us to respond in an active, God-glorifying way to the troubles and calamities that you bring our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.